comes from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler whom had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave, you, I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, I pray this morning these words be your words. Pray for your guidance and direction. Pray your Holy Spirit touch us and fill us and lead us and guide us. That the Lord Jesus Christ be glorified. In whose name we pray. Amen. Strike two. You guys will remember, when I first came here, I told you I was lost without Amy. Never let Amy get away from me. The first strike was, I read the sign downstairs wrong. I still got that in my previous newsletter. Strike two, I called the cops. <laughs> Didn't know I was calling the cops. And I, I begged her. I said, please don't come here, dude. Please don't. I'm telling you, everything's okay. But I told you, I'm lost without Amy. I make dumb decisions and... You know, I can't even do a thing on where we're doing Christmas decorations. So 
If she says, I'm gone, and you guys want me to do something, say, bring Amy. Because she kind of keeps me in the right direction most all the time. So there you go. And thanks for putting that picture up. It was, uh, yeah, it was funny. That's strike two, Brian. All right. Experience brought the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. Promise, protection, power, provision, they all learned from God. They come to Mount Sinai. At the mount, they agree with God about a covenant relationship between the two. We will obey you. You will be our God because we've seen your mighty works and your mighty power, what you've done for us in the land of Egypt. We've learned by experience who you are. So God gave them laws, commands, and statutes to live by to understand what it was to be his people and how it was to follow and serve him alone. To help them in this endeavor, to know what it was to understand, follow, and serve God. I mean, they're throwing a lot at them all at once. It's given to them all at once. And God says, I'm going to set up three offices primarily to help you along the way. There was the prophet, the seer of God. The seer knew the mind of God, understood the law of God and the will of God. And he spoke that to the people no matter what anybody else thought. He had God's ear. And he spoke the word to the people. The priest, what we would call the liturgy, all the rites and sacrifices on behalf of the people for their sin, what it meant to be clean or unclean, and how the law was to be understood. The priest served those rites. Later on, the priest would take care of the tabernacle and temple. They'd be called Levites. And then there was the king. The king was supposed to be humble. Rule with authority. Take care of his people. Watch over his people. Lead and guide his people. And the king was to present the ministry of Israel and the gospel of the one true God. Who he was and what he wanted to do in his realm and in his kingdom. And if any one of these trees broke rank or went south, the whole kingdom was in trouble. If a prophet prophesied wrong, the kingdom was in trouble. If the priest made a bad sacrifice, the kingdom was in trouble. If the king made the wrong decision on behalf of the people, the kingdom was in trouble. In my sermon text this morning, David the king had made a bad decision. He had committed adultery at Bathsheba. Then he had Uriah the Hittite murdered. He said, send him out to the front line And I will say that he had had relations with his wife, and that's how she got pregnant. So send him out there so that he can go to war, and he will die. David being the king that he was, I got this all wrapped up. I got my woman. I got the man killed. Things are going good in my kingdom. But the king forgot there was the role of the prophet. The prophet Nathan comes in one day and says, Oh, king, I want to tell you a story. Have at it, he says. Let me tell you a story about this rich man who had it going on. And he had a lot happening around him. And about this poor man who had one little thing that he loved the most. And the rich man was so haughty in all the things he was doing. He said, I'm going to take the poor man for my traveler. And I'm going to take everything the poor man has. 
David was wroth and mad as the king. Who would do that in my kingdom? And not knowing he was pronouncing judgment on himself, he said that man must die and be done away with and be restored fourfold what he had lost. Nathan looked at the king and says, David, you're the man. And here's the judgment that's coming your way. Number one, you always see war. Your house is going to be destroyed. It's always going to be bloodshed going on around you. Number two, it's going to come from your own house that you're going to lose your wives and the things you love. Number three, what you've done in secret and privately, God's going to show to the whole nations all around the world that you've disobeyed Him and His word. I will do publicly, David, what you've done privately. And number four, he says your baby's going to die. Holy smokester. What a serious judgment God placed on the king. But he was also merciful to David. He never lost his kingdom. He did have Solomon who was able to build the temple and tabernacle. But the devastation in the life of David and the life of his family and the life of his kingdom was all over the place. Bickering and arguing and bad things happening because he done wrong. And God asked him, what are you doing, man? I freed you from the throne of Saul. I called you from your home. I made you king. And it was time you took everything that Saul had. I gave it to you freely because I chose you to be mine. Why have you done such a thing to me? He asked David. All you had to do is ask and I would have gave you whatever you wanted. But you've sinned and you've done wrong. Now there's a price to pay for what has happened. God pronounced judgment on David because he disobeyed God. But you know what? Man has always walked in disobedience for the love of Pete. We disobeyed in the garden. Cain and Abel disobeyed. Disobeyed Noah. They came to the mountain. They disobeyed, built him an idol. They didn't want to listen to the Lord Jesus. Man has always disobeyed and disobeys always causes dissension and fraction in the kingdom. David had went so far out that the, uh, one of his men had to come and say, Hey, what are you doing, man? I've been out here fighting this battle for a year and we need you to come and be king now. He had left his throne. He had forsaken what he was supposed to do as a king because he was doing what he wanted, how he wanted. He was asking the question, who's the boss? Was David the boss because of experience? Because God had called him through experience? Was David the boss of his kingdom because God had touched him and blessed him? Was David the boss that he could do whatever he wanted? No, he wasn't the boss. God wanted him to know the word was the boss. Who he was, what he was teaching. He was the boss. And David just couldn't go his own way and do his own thing. Disobedience has been forever. And anytime man walks in disobedience, he frustrates the kingdom of God. And it walks all around. And it hurts everybody affected in the kingdom. This is what was going on during that time. 
But not only does man falling away from the word of God and saying the word is no longer my boss, the word is no longer my king, my experience controls me, my heart controls me, I want nothing to do with the word. The prophet always comes in and said, it's the word that must guide your life. So, who cares? Everybody knows the word should guide their life. But it's not the word that guides our life. It's the interpretation of the word. How do we understand the word spoken? Is this not happened since the garden? God said you can do anything you want but this. And what was said to Eve. Did he really say that? Did he really mean that? Didn't he mean something else? Go ahead and eat of this fruit. Go ahead and do what you want. God didn't really mean what he said. Look what happened there. When they went into captivity, I've been talking about this for a long time. Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, all of them coming and saying, you are going to go into captivity. God loves us. We will not go into captivity, the other prophet said. These prophets are lying. Tear Jeremiah's scroll up. Put Jeremiah in jail. Don't listen to them because God loves you and cares for you. He will not put you into captivity. And God says you're going to jail and you're going to jail for 70 years. You better get used to it. My word has spoken it. And so they started bickering and fighting. Who understood the word of God the best? How are we to interpret what God is saying? To cure that problem, by the time we come to the time of Jesus, there were three people who kind of ruled the roost for Israel. There was the Pharisees who taught the law of God. This is God's law. This is his word. But they also taught tradition. Jesus said the traditions of men, they taught tradition. And what they called the oral law. You must obey this as well if you're going to be a follower of God. We don't want to go back to captivity. True statement. We don't want to not be blessed anymore. True statement. We don't want to be hurt anymore. We want God to rule us. So we're going to put all this around to lead us and guide us and direct us. The Sadducee says, we too obey the law of God. But you Pharisees are wrong. Your old traditions are wrong. Don't expect anything from God. Just serve him and follow him and hope one day you'll end up somewhere good. There is no angels. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's no this. There is no that. Follow the strict law of God, the Sadducees say. And there's my favorite group, the Essenes. The Essenes went off by themselves. They wanted to live what was called the simple life. We'll live in caves and deserts. We'll dress simple. we eat a couple of berries. Uh, we won't get married and have children. How are you going to propagate your religion like that? They said, we'll get our nephews and nieces and we'll make the religion grow. So you got the Pharisees, you got the Sadducees, and you got the Essenes trying to teach the children of Israel what it was to be the people of God. All this controlled by the high priest. How would you like to be a high priest? Lead those three kinds of groups. The high priest has to listen to the scribes, the Pharisees, the Essenes, and the Sadducees. And he has to bring all these groups together to serve and follow God. And if he don't do his job, guess who comes into town? Rome. You can't control your people. You can't rule your people. You can't discipline your people. You can't lead and guide your people. We'll take care of that for you. And we'll just come in and we'll just take your whole land. And we'll destroy your temple and do what we want to do. Interpretation happened during Jesus' time. Did not the 12 disciples? They said, hey, man, there's 70 cats over here following you doing miracles. 
You want us just to go take them out right now? He said, no, don't do that. He's with me. They're with me. They're my followers. They was interpreting what Jesus was doing was wrong. They interpreted Daniel wrong. Tell us about the end times, Jesus. When are you coming back? When are you going to fulfill these things? We need to know. And the one I like the best is they all wanted to be close to Jesus and rule in his kingdom. So you know what they did? They did what I would have done. They sent mom. The mother come and ask, hey, grant my two sons, one on your right and one on your left. Now somebody's going to get it done that's going to be mom. So mom, go get them to do this for me. Understanding, forsaking the law of God, interpreting God's way, interpreting his word has been a part of mankind. It happened in Acts 15. The Gentiles get saved because of the apostle Paul who comes to Christ and he goes to preach to them. But it wasn't until Peter had the dream and he saw it come down from heaven and God says, what I've called clean, you're not allowed to call unclean. So they're fighting. Do the Gentiles have to keep all the law and the commandments? And Peter comes in and he intercedes. Interpretation, understanding of the scripture. So James, the leader, writes him a letter and he sends it off. And then he goes and pastors a Jewish law-abiding church and he sets Paul free to teach the Gentiles and preach to the Gentiles. This happened in 1 John. 1 John says they was with us. They followed us. They were around us, but they didn't know what we knew. They were called Gnostics. They believed they could serve God on the inside. It didn't matter what happened on the outside. And John says, that ain't the word. That ain't what the Spirit taught us. He says they weren't with us. Had they been with us, they would be with us today. So there's the law, and then there's the interpretation, how it's to be understood, followed, guided, leaded, and directed. The church scattered, and the church began to spread, and the church began to grow under persecution. And around the year 300, 312, this dude gets what's called tolerance to believers. The church has now become respected. You are not allowed to persecute Christians. They will now be respected in my realm. So the church was able to formulate um, doctrine and councils. I have up here Pope Leo. Pope Leo the Great, probably one of the greatest Catholic popes there was. And what he was able to do, he was able to bring an understanding at a council of the nature of Jesus Christ. How does God relate to Jesus? How does Jesus relate to the Holy Spirit? How do all these things work together? This is what the church is asking. What's going on and how do these things relate? So these councils are all set up by all these great men of God to know what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. To understand his nature and his work and to understand the church and how the church is formed. The church began to grow and it began to do good and it became pretty settled. And so men came along and they said, you know what? We want the word of God in the hands of the common man. We want the man, the common man, to be able to understand the word and maybe to be able to take the full set of communion. We need the common man to do this. So guys like John Huss, who start to rebel a little bit, John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, men of God who reach out to their communities, who want to see something good done to help the poor so that the man can come to know God, begin to do things and putting the scriptures and writing things out where people can understand. This all happened because in the year 1054, this called this great schism. Now the church was one up to this point. 
But then Catholicism and the Greek Orthodox, they got in a little bit of a tiff, taff. The Greek Orthodox keeps what we call the Greek New Testament from the 4th century, and they kind of follow that, been their whole lives like that. They have their ordinance and their rituals. And then the Catholic Church was west in Rome because the empire got moved from Rome to Constantinople for a time, and then they just split. I'm only dealing with the western part because that's where we're concerned at today. The Latin Vulgate dominated the whole realm. So the priests and everybody speaking Latin. So they break in 1054. These men come out and they put the language in the people's hands. They say, we want you to learn. We want you to grow. And we want to help you. And then there was a man named Menno Simons. Fantastic priest. He comes along and he really, him and another named Grable, uh, really start two movements up to the time of the Protestant Reformation. After what we call the Protestant Reformation, where you have Luther and Calvin and, and a bunch of dudes doing their own thing, the church had become settled. It had become real formal, real direct, and they had certain beliefs and creeds and readings and stuff. And these guys says, uh, maybe this ain't the right thing to do. So Menno Simons comes along, and I don't know what year it was. He starts teaching rebaptism. That baptism, and it's called anabaptism. The baptism of a child is no good. A believer must make a confession of faith in Christ to be baptized. So they begin to say only uh, certain age kids, only adults can be baptized. They have to be baptized in water. They have to be baptized three times in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And a baptism broke off and says, we need to have a different form of baptism where only adults can be baptized. And then another group come along and says, I'm tired of all this formal stuff. You get up, you got a bunch of long readings, the Old Testament, the New Testament, a gospel. You got a psalm, a proverb. You have three-hour services going on. And it's so formal, what they would call ritualistic. Another group came along who were called pietists. They said there has to be something in the heart of man that changes his heart, that causes the heart to live out what you guys are talking about. There must be a religion of the heart where the Holy Spirit comes into one and moves them forward in the ways of God. So anabaptism, adult baptism, and the formality of these churches that's going on, saying you're so formal and you're so connected to the state, we need to break from this. So this dude and eight other people, Alexander Mack, accept these two views of Christianity, anabaptism. You've heard the word dunker. Now, dunkers, Mennonites, they're all cooked in there together in a big pot. They called them dunkers. Why? They redunked them as adults. And they dunked them in the name of the Father, trying to emerge in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Alexander Mack and these eight people says, that, that's our heart right there. Baptized adults in trying baptism and this idea of piety where it's a religion of the heart. He comes inside you. He changes you. You make a confession of faith. It changes the whole nature of the Protestant Reformation and Christianity. So these eight people, they get persecuted where they were at in Germany. And they decide to eventually come to America. They come to America to extend their faith. Now they, they want what's called Mennonites, Moravians. Different people came to the faith of this. 
But as in everything on interpretation, everything that goes on, there was a break. The brethren asked the same question they've asked since the early church. What does it mean to follow God? What does it mean to be baptized? What does it mean to be his servant? So they began to split and fight. Just a few things they might have bickered over. Dress. Simple dress. We have to have a beard. We have to have a bonnet. What kind of communion are we going to have? What kind of service are we going to have? What does it mean to be who we are? So they begin to break. And they begin to split off from one another. At least 25 branches of some kind of brethren faith is up here on this screen. 25 different branches of the brethren faith. So just for us right here, here's one of the things where I think that we are lined up with. We might be known as a progressive brethren. Not for sure, but that's what I'm going to guess based on my studies. And here's what I mean. So the brethren church starts in homes. They start in their home. They begin to grow and they want simple houses, little white buildings to worship in. Plain James. Nothing to it. They begin to grow. Society begins to grow. And they say, well, look at West Alexandria. Look at this Lutheran church over here. They're a nice big old building. Look at this United Church of Christ. They're a nice big old building. Look at all these churches with their nice big old building. Maybe we want to have a voice in the community. Maybe we want to build a nice little building. This is a result of that. The old brethren wouldn't have had paid pastors and paid servants and all that kind of stuff. They did it growing up through their uh, religious system and growing people up. But they said, maybe we need to have paid ministers. So they begin to split. And they begin to split again. And they begin to split again, which is where you're at today. And the last split was with what's called the covenant brethren. What is the whole argument about all this stuff? Here's what I believe. I believe it's all based on this little manual right here. See this right here? Biblical inspiration and authority. Who's the boss? Who controls the house? Who rules the roost? The conference cannot decide who rules the roost. In fairness to them. Remember, there's no creeds or confessions. There's no standard standard of faith that one must confess to be in the church you have beliefs everybody has beliefs there's things you hold to but there's no standard we believe in one god almighty maker of heaven they don't there's no creeds pentecostals don't have creeds they don't have confession so because there's no set confession the kingdom is in turmoil the conference says we allow the district to make their own decisions this districts can make their own decision on how they're to handle the interpretation of the word of God. So now you have districts starting to bicker with one another about how do we interpret this word? How do we understand the word of God? How do we follow the word of God? One district says we believe God's word means this and this is how we interpret these words. Another group says well this is how we view it and how we understand it. So now in the districts they send what these called queries to the conference, will you please answer this question for us? The kingdom is distraught because they don't know who the boss is. Now, maybe you're in a district where they understand who the boss is. Maybe we're in a district that don't. I don't know. 
But Alexander Mack and his followers never dissected that in this sense. He always believed, in my understanding, that the word of God was the boss. And I just want to show you. Amy said I wasn't allowed to read the whole thing because it's too much. So I told her I wouldn't. So they're asking him these questions. How does the spirit of God work in a person? How does that relate to the word of God in the life of a person? If I have the spirit of God and the spirit of God speaks to my heart, do I have to follow the outward word of the scripture? That's a legit question. This dude had it going on. This is what he says. Whatever then Paul, Peter, and John wrote, ordained, and commanded at that time was all agreed to by all of the faithful of that time, insofar as they were still sound in the faith, since there is one spirit and only one, then this holy and unique spirit cannot will other that which he willed for salvation many hundred years ago. He didn't change his mind, he says. Because you filled in your spirit and the word says something else, it don't mean he changed his mind. That which the Holy Spirit ordained for the faithful was written outwardly. All believers are united in it. For the Holy Spirit teaches them inwardly just as the scriptures teach them outwardly. However, when men come to the scriptures with their wisdom and carnal minds, they do not have the spirit of faith within themselves. Therefore, they cannot believe the testimony of the scriptures outwardly, nor follow in obedience of faith. Indeed, it is not written for them, and therefore they are free from the commandments which are contained therein. He says, if the Spirit of God is working in me, and the Spirit leads me, guides me, and directs me, do I have to follow the scriptures? And he says, what kind of question is that? It is the Spirit in you, moving through you, that causes you to line up with the Word of God. And he says, if the word of God is not your boss, there's something wrong with the clicker on the inside of you. It's not the spirit of God, he says. He says, they work hand in hand. But who's the boss? It's the word. So then they ask him another question. And this is what he said. However, when a person says, out of the hotness alone, that the laws of his God are written in his heart while he poses the orders, statutes, and laws which the Son of God and his apostles have ordained, of which the scriptures testify outwardly, you may be quite sure that he's still in the world. The law which he claims to have in his heart was written by the spirit of errors and lies. He never once doubted the word of God or put the word of God down. He never once said the word was not important in our lives. He never once said the word didn't guide our lives. He said the word works with the spirit that's experience that's how the israel experience that's what you experienced when you came to christ you came to christ because he done something in your heart you looked in the word and that word spoke to you and confirmed in you what god was doing the word is the boss the word controls our lives so i know everybody's bickering everybody's wondering Everybody's hearts is tormented about what is this vote for? And they want to pick issues and this and that. This is what they did. It was all about issues. He never debated issues. The word 
How is the word to be interpreted? How is the word to be understood? And he says they wrote it. They meant what they wrote. And that's what it means. And we must follow that word. That's what you're voting on this morning. Who's the boss? You say what you want. But who rules your heart? And I want your minds to be at ease this morning. I want you to be comforted this morning. That you are listening and following Alexander Mack and the eight who left to get out of all the crazy stuff and to find their way. Now, I want to say to you this morning four ways in which I think you maintain your brethren distinctives. Four ways that we remain brethren. And then after that, I'm going to go on a tangent for a minute. Number one, worship. And I just want to say, Pastor Brody Reich, that dude is the bomb. I'm just telling you. That dude put all of this together over at the Brethren Heritage Center in a box. Everything I've learned, I've learned talking to him, going to the Brethren Heritage Center, digging into all that stuff, diving into it. He laid it all out. I wish you guys would know the work he put into this. He put a lot of work in it, and I'm sure it burned his heart. It had to. It just would have had to to be going through all this. But four ways I believe you maintain your brethren distinctive. Number one is through worship. And that is your Sunday morning service. I've got bulletins from 1936 from the Heritage Center. And my goodness, you talk about bulletins, you three hour long service. There's no way you guys are going to have a three hour service. I can tell you that right now. I mean, it was reading after reading after reading. But somewhere in this worship is a call to worship, a call to bring us into the presence of God. Somewhere in this worship is these good old-fashioned brethren hymnals. These hymnals are the bomb. I mean, they speak to the heart of man, who a man is, where is it, his relationship to God. These are some really good brethren songs. When we have our missions things going on that, and uh, Rhonda Lee and Allie and all them get together, man, these songs fit the service. The brethren hymnals are the bomb. Now, some of these may not be brethren distinctives, but I, I still think they're brethren. In worship, you do the Lord's Prayer. You say your prayer, then you do the Lord's Prayer as a body of believers. You do these things as an act of worship to God. You do them on Sunday mornings when you gather together for worship. But also in worship, at least I'm going to try to bring back what I call somewhat the best I can to church calendar. That would be, you know, the Lent service, Ash Wednesday, the threefold communion, what we call the love feast. Okay, I'm still learning that stuff. On Monday, Thursday, I know you guys do it in spring and fall. I, you know, I'm still working on this. But that is a brethren distinctive. Now, other churches do it, but it is a brethren distinctive on the love feast. That is a part of worship and who you are. We should maintain that. That makes you brethren in that sense. So worship, brethren. Number two, giving. What is giving? Got Everybody gives. But just let me mention a few things. Number one, Heifer International started as a brethren movement. And it has ties to this congregation. The great uncle or somebody served here or pastored here or something. The brethren, the, uh, the Heifer International, as missions. You're giving in missions 
helps do what I think is one of the best things you can do as missions, and that is present people with ways to work and earn a living and grow their families and grow the food source and extend it to somebody else. Heifer International is the work that makes you brethren. Secondly, giving and brethren disaster relief. When we went over there to the uh, Happy Corner Church, there was a call made out, and so many people bought brooms and mops and everything, and we just went over there and gave. That is a brethren distinctive, and you gave. You gave to that. That is a brethren distinctive. The third part of giving is part of the pension, 1% of that, my understanding is, goes to help retired pastors, retired secretaries, and retired clerks. Why would you not want to help men and women of God who serve God their whole lives and not give to that? They can't work anymore. They're relying on God through the goodness of his people, and we are the ones who are doing that to helping them out. So giving. And I want to thank you for all you give because I know most people just give, and they don't send it back to a church for reimbursement. You just give. And your giving is so phenomenal and so awesome, you reach out in a brethren way through your giving. Number three, I think you maintain your brethren distinctive is government. And that would be all your commissions. Okay? Commission City. Each commission works individually to bring the body together. If you want a nice place to worship, you want your grounds to look good, you want your building to look good, you want everything to flow, you call the stewards. The stewards help us have a place to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. They make it happen. Then you have nurture and care. Is that what you're called, nurture and care? Nurture and witness committee. Your dinners, you're reaching out on the, the Halloween stuff. They bring the fellowship of the congregation together. And they work to bring that aspect to the church as one. Then you have your worship committee. The worship committee brings us into the very presence of God on Sunday morning. Do you know how important that is? That we are prepared in worship when we come to the house of God to worship Him and honor Him. We pray, we seek the face of God, and we ask Him to direct us in our worship that we can work as one. They bring us right into the presence of God. Now, the board pretty much represents what's called the council. They have their thing. And then there's the deacons. And maybe you deacons like it or don't, but you are the spiritual leaders of the church. You have the heart of God inside of you. You send out cards. You visit. You give communion. You call on people. You let everybody know they're special in the eyes of God. You lead the way for God to minister to the people, their spirituality and who they are and how they grow in Christ. Each one of these commissions and each one of these boards work together in unity as one for the glory of God and brings the church together. And finally, tradition. I'm telling you right now, when the legal officers were speaking, and Dean Steiber says, Oak Street Brethren, whew, it just shot through me. Simple, plain, to the point. It honors the brew bakers when they gave the land and they said, We're going to put the land on this street. This is how this church is going to be built around this corner. Tom's Run, 
and Sugar Hill came together in 1923 and said, this is where we're going to place the glory of God. And they built this sanctuary right here. And I know it's changing all that stuff, but they built it right here. You honored those who built this church. There can be nothing more important than honoring those who laid the foundation for you and I to be in this sanctuary today. Oak Street Brethren makes you distinctively brethren. That can never be changed. Thank God for the saints of God who laid this foundation. So I'm going to ask for two things from you as a congregation from this point on. I do want us to be an ark. I don't know why I'm on this boat thing. Don't let me go back to the ark ever again. I want us to be a haven of safety for for two people. Two people. Number one, for brethren who are really struggling in their own lives because they don't know what it means to be brethren. They're hurting. They're struggling. And they just don't know what to do or where to go. I want to be that ark of safety for all those who are hurting, all those who are struggling, and all those who are down and out. I can't answer. I can't answer 25 brethren distinctives. I can't do that, man. You can't do that. We're, I, we're beyond that point. We can't do that. But we can answer these things, can't we? To say you're safe here, you have a home here, and we welcome you here. Why do we want to reach the lost man and the hurting man? And that's important. I'm not saying it ain't. But there are some people we need to reach that don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. They're looking for an ark of safety, man. They're looking for a boat. Why can't we say, let us be that people? Let us be the people to reach out to you so that you can come in. And the best we can do is help you to live what is your brethren faith. Why can't we be that ark for them? It's raining out there. The rain is pouring and they don't know what to do. They don't know where to turn. Why can't we open our hearts to them and say, we have a boat. We have an ark. The second thing is, this goes back to me now, is our families. Why in the world am I so concerned about winning the lost man I can't even reach my own family? I, I preached at prison two nights a week. We started the health clinic. We started the kids' center. I was going every night preaching the gospel. But if I've lost the heart of my family, if my family doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ and ain't serving him, what good is it? We can easily say we reach the lost man, but what about our loved ones, our sons and our daughters who are hurting and down and out? Why don't we say to them, there's a God, there's a Christ. Come to him. Come into the ark and be safe. Come into the boat that's being built. How do I know this will work? How, how do I know this is the way I believe we should go? Is you're, you're prepared for this. You are ready for this. Number one, you have love. You welcome everybody that comes to the church. Nobody's refused. You welcome everybody. Say, here we are. We're here for you. You're prepared and you're ready for the harvest that's going to come. It's going to come through brethren who are hurting and it's going to come through our families. The harvest is coming. 
You are prepared and you are ready for it. And I know because you've welcomed my family. You welcome my friends. You make them feel apart. The deacons get right on it. They pray for them. They talk to them. They call them. They minister to them. Everybody's doing their job. This is how I know you're ready. And I know you're ready because you have been good to me. Now here it goes on my little rant. Then I'll, sorry I bored you to death. I've known Mr. Shockey for 100 years. Now, I've been coaching at Preble Shawnee for 15. I'd see him at the games. I didn't know he had grandkids cheerleading way back in, you know, 15 years ago, whatever. Never really talked to him. You know, just, hey, how you doing, Mr. Shockey? Tell me, am I coaching good or coaching bad? That's all I want to know. It's okay today, Brian, but why didn't that kid do that? I don't know. You can't get the kid to do nothing. But anyway. But one day at a basketball game, here comes Noah. He comes running across the basketball court. And he pops a seat right beside me. Now here's all going to be emotional and paraphrasing all things maybe it shouldn't be. <laughs> but Noah says, hey, we got an ark, man. And an ark's got a good foundation. But we, we, we're looking for some help in the ark. We're looking for somebody to come and help guide and lead the ark. Now, Mr. Shockey didn't know I was all torn up on the inside. I had been preaching and teaching and doing things, but on the inside, I was a rotten mess. Two songs kept me going by a guy named Toby Mack. One was uh, Help Is On The Way, and two, You're My Promised Land. And he says, come and help us build this boat. I came, you not once judged me, asked me any questions, which you probably should have. What's your tradition? How loud do you preach? Where are you from, cat? But you know what you did? You welcomed me in. Never made a judgment on my life. Now you might talk to him about, about, I don't care. But I'm saying, you welcome me in, you welcome my wife in, and you said, come and let's work together. I believe this is God's call in our life. I believe this is the way the harvest will come. I believe you have done the work, you have prayed, you have sought God. And I'm saying, let the harvest come. Let's reach out to him and let's touch our families. But you have to answer the question, just like Alexander Mack did. Who's the boss? I want to leave you with this because they asked him a question about, they called him his fledgling brethren church because they're struggling. You know, they're growing and they're moving. So they asked him a question. Uh, what do you think about this brethren movement? This is what he says. If we remain in the teaching of the New Testament, we expect this outcome, namely, that the fulfillment of our faith will be eternal life. In return, for insignificant shame and suffering, we will obtain immeasurably momentous glory. We cannot testify for our descendants. As their faith is, so shall be their outcome be. What a phenomenal statement. Let us live out our faith that there is a God. He's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And we want to reach those who are hurting. And we want to reach our families. And let God do with us how he will. Would you pray with me this morning? And then we're going to have a special benediction song. Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you for the foundation of this movement. And the men and women who've laid such a hard foundation and served you and followed you. I just thank you for that. Thank you for the work that you've done on the cross of Calvary. Thank you for who you are and what you've done and what you mean to our hearts. Let us live out the faith, God, that you've asked us to live out. 
that you be glorified, that your Holy Spirit teach us, lead us, and guide us, and your word work through us to minister to others. Let everything we say and do glorify you and let our hearts be clean in your eyes. We ask you now this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me for a song of dismissal? This is going to be our benediction song. I can't sing worth a lick, but this is a song I learned in the military, and I think it's going to sing loud too because we don't have the words up here. But how, how many... Is it we are one in how many know we are one in the spirit? We are one in the spirit, we are one in the Lord, we are one in the spirit, we are one in the Lord, and we pray that our unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love, yes they'll know. Now, Lord Jesus, we do want to be one in you and follow you and serve you. We ask you, Lord, to be with us the rest of this day. We ask now that you bless the lunch today, bless our time together with the district today, and that, Lord, in all things you be uplifted and you be glorified. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Enjoy lunch and the meeting today.